0: Great. Well, hello everyone, welcome uh, to this Institute for Government event on the topic following through with levelling up, what transport and where. I'm Tom Pope, the Deputy Chief Economist at the Institute. Um, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Grant Thornton for making this event possible today. and It's really great to have Will uh, to speak on the panel. So to the, the matter at hand, the Trust Government has not yet set out its stall on regional policy. Um, I think it's fair to say it's still unclear whether the levelling up agenda will survive or at least in what form. But what is clear is that improving the performance of UK regions outside of London and the south-east will be important to drive the growth that, I think it's fair to say, that the new Prime Minister has prioritised. And that makes this topic particularly relevant. Inadequate transport infrastructure has been blamed as a key contributor to poor economic performance outside of London and the south-east. And transport policy is a key lever uh, that governments at different levels uh, can pull. So today we're going to discuss the role of transport to promote regional growth exploring whether, whether the government's current approach is the right one, and how infrastructure spending can best be targeted to generate large returns in the regions. And to discuss this event, I'm delighted to welcome an excellent panel. On my far right, we have Andrew Jones, who is MP for Harrogate and He who is a former transport minister and is chair of the Transport for the North APPG. So he brings a, a wealth of experience to this question. It's great to have you here today, Andrew. Uh, we then have uh, Adam Hawksby, to my immediate right, who's Deputy Director and Head of Leveling Up at Onwards. He was previously Head of Policy at West Midlands Combined Authority, working with Andy Street to shape and deliver programmes on housing, transport skills and economic developments. We then have uh, Laura Schoaf, who is CEO of the West Midlands Combined Authority and Chair of the Urban Transport Group. Um, she's been CEO of the Combined Authority since June last year, um, and we're really looking forward to hearing about what WMCA is doing in this space. And last but not least, we have Will McWilliams, Partner Head of Public Services Advisory at Grant Thornton. Uh, he's the practice leader of the Public Services Advisory Team with more than 20 years of experience in infrastructure development, public sector contracting, and wider consultancy, and is currently advising both central and local government clients on several major infrastructure projects. And I think you said that you started your career in the transport industry too. Well, so this is this is you coming home. Yeah, Just a few housekeeping notes uh, before we begin. This event is on the records, and there will be a recording on our website sometime later. Um, we will be tweeting the event from at IFGEvents using the hashtag IFGCon22, so please do follow along there if you are that way inclined. We'll leave plenty of space for questions towards the end, so do be thinking of those and uh, do wait for the mic to come to you at the end. Uh, just a warning, the mic is not actually going to project in the room, it's for the recording later. So don't don't panic when when you can't hear your your booming voice. And I know Andrew has to leave a few minutes early, so we'll make sure there's plenty of time for questions uh, before then. Great, so on to uh, the subject matter. And I'll come to you first, Andrew. We've heard a lot from, uh, we haven't heard a lot from Liz Truss about her approach to levelling up, but we do know that she's prioritising growth. Do you think transport will be a big feature of that vision? Um, if so, what should the guiding principles of a transport strategy be?
1: Right, well, um, Tom, thank you very much for the invitation to join you. I have absolutely no doubt at all that transport will feature uh, very heavily because I am clear that uh, the government is above all going to be focusing upon growing our way out of the economic challenges that we are facing and that transport will be a big driver of growth I do not expect the levelling up agenda to falter. I think it is established, it is in the DNA of the party. Actually, I think it's been in the DNA of lots of different parties over quite a prolonged time, Uh, whether it was closing the North-South divide, Northern powerhouse, levelling up, whatever it's been, different parties uh, across a number of years have sought to make some progress. And the fact that, obviously, uh, it hasn't been resolved shows there's a long way to go. Uh, So I, I completely expect... Uh, levelling up to continue to be central to my colleagues and the government and that transport will feature very heavily within it. So therefore the next question is what are the guiding principles that will be used and I'd just like to suggest a few if I may. Uh, Firstly I think there will be a focus upon speed of delivery. It takes us an incredibly long time to discuss, plan, agree, disagree, replan and then disagree again before we actually do anything about infrastructure. One of the most depressing, uh, but also quite stimulating, actually, visits I did as a road minister was to a project down in the southwest, which had first appeared in the county plan in the reign of King George VI. <laughs> so uh, the opportunity for revisions uh, is, is too high. I, so I'm expecting a focus upon speed of delivery and... Uh, therefore, suggestions on how we can accelerate the process, not not compromise Uh, compromise in terms of poor planning or compromise in terms of environmental standards. Far from it. Uh, It's just a question of how can we achieve the same outcomes in a slightly more efficient way. I think another criteria will not, not just be speed, but the economic impact. We are clearly heading into much tougher territory. Uh, We are likely to see a recession in large parts of the world and we all know the causes for it and I won't spend any time on that but I think we have to work hard to avoid it and I think we can do that. So I think transport uh, projects that have a direct economic uh, impact will be prioritised. I don't think it is a modal question, I think it is just about the economy, and uh, it won't be a question of who delivers it, whether it's local, regional, or or uh, national. I've been encouraged by the uh, Northern powerhouse rail announcement, which we had earlier in the week. I was particularly encouraged, actually, by the Bradford inclusion, the stop in Bradford. My father worked in the textile industry in Bradford and I, I did the 11 plus and went to Bradford Grammar School. So it's a city I know well, have much affection for and it needs some help and the transport connections are utterly inadequate for a city of its scale and potential. But more, more local examples which I think uh, might make the point. I, I have uh, obviously a very regular dialogue with the Job Centre in my constituency and for every one unemployed person we have four vacancies. Yet, just down the road, 15 miles away in Bradford, we have unemployment rates which are six to seven times higher. So, why are we not able to connect people and jobs? The answer to that is inadequate transport links. Or another example, the chief executive of the Skipton Building Society came to see me saying he was struggling to recruit. Skipton, small market town in the Yorkshire Dales, very successful business. If the Skipton-Colne rail link was built, the uh, towns of East Lancashire could perhaps be a source of employment uh, opportunities, um, employee opportunities really for him and employment opportunities for them. But again, transport has held it back. So I see the uh, role for transport in levelling up to be enormous and I, I expect it to be front and centre of the government. I would expect a whirlwind of pressure for action, delivery, getting on with things as quickly as possible. I suspect that the government will be very open to uh, ideas from the private sector about how we can do that, how technology can be used to improve the situation uh, and it will be putting some pretty vigorous challenges about how we get more done for less. I think it's going to be an exciting but bumpy time in the transport sector.
0: That was a wonderful start to the to the session, so thank you, Andrew, Laura. I'll come to you next. Transport's one of those areas where the combined authorities has some powers. Um, when do you think it is the combined authority rather than, say, a bigger organisation, central government that's best placed? Um, and how are you using your powers at the moment?
2: Uh, Thank you, and welcome everybody to Birmingham and to the West Midlands, uh, just commenting uh, on how great it looks and what a pleasure it was to host the Commonwealth Games and um, how many wonderful comments, even from people in the audience, about about how wonderful the city uh, looks. Um, And the reason I start with that is because I think there's actually a direct relationship between uh, some of of those things. So... um, as a as a mayoral-led combined authority, we are also a transport authority, and we are uh, passionate about providing the residents of the West Midlands with the best public transport system that we possibly can and an integrated one. I mean, earlier today we were talking a lot about integration um, and devolution, and at what spatial geography is it um, is it sensible and one of the things I think is sensible to plan at this at this geography is it is a transport network so um one of the challenges that we have I think though is that we don't have a uh, devolution in the same way that it is perhaps in London so we have different modes of of travel we have a, a rail network a bus network we own and operate our metro mm-hmm. network walking and cycling active travel um and what we want to do and I think what what all city regions want to do is to plan for an integrated network. I don't want a bus competing with a tram. I don't want a tram competing with a with a train. Um, I want people to be able to, to jump on an on a e-scooter and um, to go, go through to a bus that drops them off at a train that then turns up on time. And one of the challenges is, is that we don't have all the powers uh, to be able to do that. Um, But these things are a journey, right? And we've been on a journey. So we've had two devolution deals um, so far. And one of the things we were talking about that's been really useful for mayor-led combined authorities is five-year funding settlements so we can plan properly, so we know what our pipeline is. That's what the market tells us it wants in terms of certainty, so it understands what it needs to do to get ready to deliver. So... Um, You know, we've seen uh, a a difficult time, obviously, on transport with COVID, but on the back of the games, we had every single mode of our transport saw record breaking days during the games. And there was one day when over a quarter of a million people went through New Street Station. Um, And, you know, that just shows you the power, which I think transport can come back to and come back uh, with. Um, we're building rail stations. Uh, we're buying electric buses and hydrogen buses. We're trying to decarbonize um, our network. That's really important to us. Um, we have uh, a great cycle hire scheme. We made that free during the games. That was really popular as well. Lots of people used it, and we've got uh, we've introduced e-bikes into that. As well, which um, for people who know um, our geography, the West Midlands is not flat. Um, and so e bikes have been really interesting to see how people will take those up and, and use those, introducing people to active travel that might not have been able um, to do that. But we have really big ambitions for what we want to continue to deliver. Um, and one of the things um, that, that is helpful is the ability to uh, uh, raise revenue locally. So, again, we own and operate the metro for a long time we've had ambitions to build our metro network but it wasn't until we took that in house which gave us the ability to borrow against the fare box that allowed us to free up um, a, a sizable local contribution to continue then to continue to build it so Areas areas who have that vision, who want to plan that integrated network, um, you know, what we're really after is um, I'm sort of less fussy about who, who, you know, who actually runs it. But how do we get that end-to-end journey that we know people want to make from where they start to finish their journey, where it doesn't matter what mode they use, um, they all work together, they're all paid for by a single ticket. You know, imagine if you got off the train and the bus was there, as opposed to the bus left just five minutes before your train got there, and I have to wait 50 minutes for the bus. So that's the vision, and that's the ambition, um, and we want to continue to invest. So what we're, what we're after is, I think, just really recognition that devolution has already achieved quite a lot, but it can go a lot further, um, especially around fiscal devolution, some of the, the powers and funding that will help us to get on and, um, and deliver in the region.
0: Brilliant. Thanks, Laura. Lots that we can come back to there. Adam, I'll come to you next. Uh, Onwards have obviously done lots of work on the levelling up agenda. Do you agree that transport is a big part of the problem? And what would need to be done to achieve the levelling up mission, which was to have public transport connectivity significantly closer to the standards of London by 2030?
3: Remember those missions? That feels like a long time ago now, doesn't it? Um, uh, thank you so much for having me, Tom, and the Institute for Government as well. Really love all of your work on levelling up. So great to be able to speak uh, on this panel, and also with my old boss, uh, Laura. Um, but now I don't work at the Combined Authority anymore. I can we'll be a bit um, punchier in terms of some of our messages and and speak to the uh, uh, speak to some of the context under what Laura uh, said there about devolution. So. Uh, As Tom said, we've done some work looking at uh, to what degree transport connectivity is central to levelling up. We did a a report about a year ago called Network Effects, which produced a a data set that we thought more accurately uh, reflected connectivity in this country. So what the Department for Transport previously did was look at how far you could get in 60 minutes on public transport. I think that's pretty useless. It matters where you are getting to. Uh, And so we produced a data set that showed how many jobs you could access uh, within 30, 60, 90 minutes of public transport. We were pleased that the Department for levelling up used our dataset instead of the DFT dataset in the levelling up white paper earlier this year and what that showed is the massive discrepancies in this country in terms of how many jobs you can access via public transport. Places like Barnet and Epping Forest you can access seven times as many jobs uh, with 60 minutes of public transport as you can within a five mile radius of a particular uh, neighbourhood. In places like Stoke-on-Trent or Bolsover you can actually access fewer jobs within 60 minutes of public transport than you can within a five mile radius. Both of those areas, the ratio is about 75% of the jobs within a 60 minute public transport link as you can within five miles. Clearly, that is not good enough. Uh, And that's actually not much better for for roads either if we look at mobility by car. But what's really interesting is what that data set allows us to do is do kind of regressions to look at to what degree uh, Uh, connectivity to jobs is related to things we really care about, like economic deprivation, some of the things we're trying to tackle through levelling up. And actually only a tiny share of the variation uh, in local areas' economic success is explained by connectivity to jobs. Um, And actually none of that variation is explained by connectivity by car. Um, Much better explainers are things like the industry mix, the economic mix in an area, or skill levels. So how do we uh, in, uh, onward, think about those two things. We passionately believe that transport investment is important, but the data indicates that in and of itself, it's not enough to close some of the economic gaps we have. That's where actually some of our qualitative work becomes really important. So we uh, have done a piece of work called levelling up in practice. We've gone all around the country and conducted interviews with local leaders run focus groups uh, and what we've come to the conclusion we've come to to answer your question directly tom is that transport is a, a necessary but not sufficient condition to level up so in places like south shields you can get to newcastle in about 25 minutes on a metro uh, oldham they've got a tram you can get to greater manchester manchester city center rather in about 20-25 minutes uh, west brom you can get into city center birmingham in about 25 minutes when the trams are running and you're not having a, a nightmare um in each of those places, it's kind of the Anna Karenina principle, happy families are all alike, unhappy families, different, uh, unhappy in different ways. There are different barriers to realising the potential of those bits of transport connectivity. South Shield, huge health inequalities. You've got about one in four of the population that are economically inactive. A third of those are because of long-term sickness in the rest of the country. That's more like a quarter. So, real barrier there that means that just having the metro isn't uh, enough. In Oldham, Huge levels of antisocial behaviour. People won't get on the tram. Uh, Someone in our focus group said you take your life in your hands for a £3.80 return. When we said to the council leader we'd heard this, she said, oh, I wouldn't get the tram either. It's a death trap. So clearly the social fabric there is a barrier to realising that benefit. In Birmingham, I would argue that the West Brom barrier is massively about skills that both in terms of early years education, FE and HE, um, people in West Brom don't have the formal skills to access jobs in the city centre of Birmingham, even if the transport connectivity exists What does that mean? It means Devo. It means that you cannot just have a one-size-fits-all approach across the country. You need to do things differently. And it needs to be Proper devolution. The city region sustainable transport settlement, CRUSTS, was a nightmarish process in which local areas were forced to go to central government with a list of particular schemes and justify why they should be invested. We should trust local leaders with a funding envelope to know what is right in their patch and then hold them accountable for delivering on improved connectivity. Uh, and, you know, final thing on Devo, I, I sat in an SLT meeting um, at the combined authority where we found out that we'd got 150 or something hydrogen buses and I've previously worked in the US and you know you've got big mayors of, of Chicago of Boston of New York and I couldn't imagine them sitting in City Hall saying, great news, guys, DC are giving us 150 buses. We are just <laughs> in an entirely different planet when it comes to the power that our locals lead- local leaders have. And I think we sometimes don't realise that when we take for granted that the way we should allocate transport investment is by pitching in to DFT. We need proper Devo to unlock some of these things. And it's only by viewing transport as one of a series of levers that we can realise levelling up. And you can't do that from Whitehall. You have to do it at a local level.
0: That's brilliant. Thanks very much. Adam, so Will, I'll come to you next. Grant Thornton has lots of experience across the public sector, um, including on transport. And based on your experience, how do you think transport policy can be
4: used most effectively to drive regional growth? Thanks, Tom. And thanks, everyone, for making the time to come today. Um, Interestingly, one of our core client segments is the small to medium enterprises, really 50 million to 500 million turnover. We regularly survey them. Every six weeks, we survey them on what their priorities are. And building on what Andrew says, every time we survey them, and their top three or four priorities is connectivity and transport connection. So for distribution, for actually getting people to the jobs, to the opportunities to learn skills is one of the things that they continually and consistently feedback is really important. So that's why actually driving the policy to the right end is critical for the levelling up. Now, we actually considered this uh, as part of our work within transport. We actually undertook a study looking at how the UK cities compared with our European counterparts in terms of their competitiveness and what role transport connections played in. Now, that study delved into that and actually came up with sort of three key areas of um, recommendations on how policy should be shaped. Um, the first one is investment needs to be sustained it needs to be planned in the long term. You talk about five years but actually when you look at transport networks it needs to be much longer than that. I was fortunate enough to work on the business case for the tram coming from Snow Hill to Five Ways. That was almost 20 years ago. Um, when you look at what's happened as a result of that investment and the placemaking effects of that you can't argue the importance of transport and connectivity to, the, to economic well-being of cities. The second thing is actually you need to look at that investment both in small and large terms. So the large schemes, fixed nodes are important to get people to the places of opportunity quickly and efficiently, but the, the smaller interventions are also important. You can, small investments can make a big difference, and if they're target, targeted properly, they can sometimes deal with some of the problems that Andrew's talking about, those long time lags of getting through big projects through the really effective of the planning and the democratic process of challenge. So that's quite key. The next thing was governance and actually the structure of how transport's actually uh, managed. Uh, and it was clear that where that is devolved and controlled, um, there's much more effective outcomes. And we've seen quite a, a significant move in the num- last number of years in the UK through devolution, the metro mayors, combined authorities. We're starting to see that joining up with the picture and start to look at the system rather than individual elements, which is really important because it's not just about transport, it's about housing, it's about health. It pulls it all together. And also the third thing that we really thought was critical was revenue and funding. Actually, how do you take control of the sources of funding and revenue within your transport area? And that's not just about the fares, but actually if you think about where we are at the moment and you look at the way our network is built up, we still have quite a disaggregated model. You have Network Rail with the RAB still expending large amounts of money on the community or commuter rail network in this region, for example. So actually, how do you bring those all together to get the most effective use <coughs> of the resources available? And that's going to be a challenge as, we, as things tighten up. Um, and then I suppose the interesting thing is revenue is really coming in different forms. Um, we probably all have different journeys, but we all start from probably about the same point increasingly, and that's from here. You actually tap onto an app, quite a lot now to decide how you're going to travel, whether that's train line, whether that's Lime or whether it's TFL bikes um, or TFL Tube. The point is you probably have to access three or four apps to get to where you want to be. Now, there is a big opportunity around how that can be consolidated and that opportunity around data and customer information is really key. Interestingly, when the pandemic hit and the American Airlines had to refinance, Their biggest asset in terms of collateral to secure those loans um, was their loyalty schemes. The data they had on loyalty schemes and memberships was where the bank saw the biggest opportunity to secure future revenues. How they use that loyalty scheme uh, is really quite interesting in terms of the value that's created. Um, So there's still fantastic opportunities and and your options for travel now are much greater. You talk about e-bikes. I now make a choice between those when I go to London, whether it's a tube or an e-bike. But unfortunately, those three things I've just talked about were for a piece of work that was undertaken in 2008. Um, And we're making progress on these things, but I just don't think we're making progress fast enough. If we really are trying to level up in a way that redistributes, we probably need to make a bit quicker progress. We have come a long way since 2008. If you cast your minds back to that period of time, there was a lot less devolution, a lot more disaggregation. But those things that we identified back in 2008, I think are still pretty valid. Um, So that's my reflections on where we are. That's
0: brilliant. Thanks a a
4: good reminder that
0: uh, these questions come round and round again, and we certainly haven't found an easy solution to them. There are a couple of points there. It'd be great to pick up a bit more with the panel. One, I'd be really interested, Andrew, in your reflections on on some of the... calls for devolution and more devolution from members of the panel, the importance of coordinating transport with, with other investments and how hard that is to be done from Whitehall. With your experience in DFT, I'd just be really interested in your reflections on that.
1: Well, I think that uh, I didn't disagree with the word of it, actually. Um, I think that the journey that we have to take to spread opportunity and the benefits of progress that our country has seen much more widely in our, uh, our country requires not just transport, you know, as as Adam said, uh, transport alone won't do it. And I think that people understand that. They see that it is an important lever to pull. It is a lever that can connect uh, people to education, workplaces, health. Uh, investment in transport creates more trade between certain areas, more opportunities for work. But to think that transport's going to turn everything around is extremely optimistic. Uh, and I, I would suggest that it won't. It can make progress on things like health inequalities because air quality is a critical issue and it's a part of making city... Uh, improving it is a part of making city life better. But it isn't... Uh, the only health inequality. So I, I see a significant role for transport The next, uh, as a part of a mix. The next question is, how does government deliver across that, which is your question, and that's not an easy one, because government is quite siloed. In fact, it's not only quite siloed between departments, it's quite siloed within departments. So uh, I have been minister for bus, road, rail, tram uh, and various other things but not usually at the same time (laughs) and uh, so the transport is quite modal in itself. In theory that's where cross-departmental working can take place and and it does take place and I certainly found it quite effective but it requires a bit more effort uh, than it perhaps should. So I think the uh, way to approach this is to give some kind of joint responsibilities. And I'm particularly keen on joint accountabilities. Um, Because if you separate accountability and responsibility, you won't get progress. If you align them, you will. The same is true in business as it is in government. So uh, very interested. And I thought the contributions from everybody were absolutely spot on and very interesting.
0: Right. Laura, perhaps I'll come to you particularly on that accountability point. But also Adam mentioned the way that devolution sort of allows for coordination across these different levers i wonder if you give maybe some examples of how that's happening in west midlands
2: so i I, i'm in violent agreement uh with with indra about accountability and i think you have mayors up and down the country um who would love to be held accountable um and who would love to have the sort of freedoms and and the flexibilities to deliver and then i suspect would be very happy in fact i know they would they say they would to (laughs) be held uh, in front of the Public Accounts Committee um, and justify their spend, um, and I think that, that that's right. It, we are we're not going to see proper devolution until there's proper accountability, um, and those two things are slightly out of um, out of sync with each other. But w- I can give a really fantastic example about um, about why bringing together skills, um, housing and regeneration, uh, net zero in the environment. Um, and transport um, at a very strategic level and remember what, com- what combined authorities are here to do is to have, to focus on things that have impacted a regional level um, uh, and not deliver those things which can be done at, at a local level. So keeping keeping that as the focus um Uh, for colleagues who may or may not have ever been to Coventry Pool Meadow bus station. Uh, We sent um, a group of people to Coventry Pool Meadow bus station just a couple weeks ago because it is a bus station designed for uh, people who use the bus. It has a huge amount of potential, both in terms of its space and its location. Um, but we have never really challenged ourselves to think about what it could deliver if it was more than just a bus station. So if you take some of our stations um, and you think about the people who come through, uh, West Brom bus station is a fantastic example. Um, The people who come through that bus station use it every single day. um, There are all sorts of assets that you could make. So you could take take that um, bus station You could get the the Net Zero team to challenge you to think about, actually, how is it future-proof for future different types of uh, buses? Is it it electric? Is it hydrogen? How do you make it uh, a clean and green bus station in absolutely every way? And then what are we doing with the airspace above it? So you don't have to look far into Europe to see that you can have a a mixed-use development that can sit above something like a bus station if you design it in a modern way, those uses are compatible and then, and then thinking then in a completely different way about how you finance it. And maybe there's a, a need in that particular area instead of a costa to have um, a health drop-in zone or a, a, skills, a skills center for where people can find out about what is on offer. Um, or maybe the city council want to take some space to achieve some very localized um, outcomes of their own. It's a bus station. But it could be so much more than a bus station I think that is why you that that's just a really practical example of if you bring those different perspectives and you look at the problem that you're trying to solve in wider than just transport because it is an enabler I completely agree with that with that um, you can actually get a much better um, outcome and I think that is the value that we're trying to create
0: Now oh, that's brilliant and another point that I wanted to pick up on from earlier was Andrew mentioned there'll be a priority on speed of delivery and will and are you also touched on that but i'm interested on um, how far do you think that we, we could do things quicker and maybe what some of the trade-offs might be from think, doing
4: that i mean i think that's one of the sort of foremost challenges we have at the moment with large infrastructure projects um i think if you look at the front end development of our projects and the processes we have to go through to just get things approved that is really quite uh, an arduous process times. um and i think what we need to think about is actually how how can we still meet the requirements that people have a reasonable opportunity to voice their their concerns, etc. But we need to find a way of actually cutting through that a bit quicker, getting that front end because that's that takes up time. I think when we're into actual development and, and implementation of projects, one of the big developments in the construction industry industry is modularisation. Uh, Mark Wild said it on uh, the Elizabeth line, they they just. The opportunity to build off site and be much more modular approach is something that the construction industry really needs to embrace. At the moment, if you look at productivity and efficiency in the construction industry in this country, it's pretty, pretty much static for the last 20 or 30 years. We need to find that way of unlocking that, and modular building is one of those. It was an interesting uh, seminar about six months ago, and, and there was an academic from Leeds. Can't remember his name. He was actually he was actually putting a price on that. It's that, you know, basically serving democracy and taking projects through that approval process. And he estimated that that puts on about twenty percent in terms of time and cost just to get to that point. Now, you know, I've also worked in the Middle East, and projects get approved and implemented pretty quickly. Um, but I know what system I'd prefer to live in. Um, uh, in terms of you know the process and challenge, but um, it, it's a balance. It's always going to be a balance, and there has to be the appropriate scrutiny in projects. Adam, we've heard quite a bit from the government sort of trailing
0: potential planning reforms,
2: mm-hmm. you
0: know, supply side. Do you think there could be something around around that on, on infrastructure potentially making it easier? And I mean, you're you nodding quite a lot to what mm-hmm. Will was saying there. Do you have any solutions to to that trade off that Will was
3: laying out? So I would love for there to be some stuff from the government on on infrastructure, particularly as it pertains to investment zones. So I, I'm quite nervous about the idea that investment zones will be entirely um, about. Uh, marginal tax incentives about streamlining planning, Uh, I think, again, those things are a necessary but not sufficient condition to growth. And actually, a lot of the evidence of the more successful enterprise zones, either from the 2010s or the 1980s, is that that those two things, which are, you know, which are helpful, to be clear, a competitive tax environment and planning streamlining, they're they're good. Um, But they were combined with really bold public intervention around infrastructure, things like the the DLR and the Docklands, and around really ambitious approaches to uh, development. So things like putting forward public land, uh, assembling land, remediating it, some of the stuff, you know, the the HESA stuff in Merseyside alongside the Thatcherite emphasis on uh, tax incentives. And we need to remember both of those things at the same time. So I would love for the investment zones to be accompanied by big, bold, ambitious infrastructure programmes. The reason I'm framing it as I would love to see that is... Um, earlier on, Paul Scully was on one of our panels and said, "You know, we're still absolutely committed to the ninety-six billion pounds integrated rail plan." And my point was, look, ninety-six billion doesn't get you quite as far as it did two weeks ago, uh, or or a couple of months ago, and actually, that's not going to buy you the same set of projects that you thought it might before. So, the challenge, uh, particularly for a government that's going to have to go through a period of fiscal consolidation to um, give the markets confidence, if nothing else, is is how they're going to do that. And my sense is there is a risk that where they look for some of those savings is in capital schemes. Um, At best, I think they might be protected and risen in line with inflation. I think it's unlikely they'll do additional infrastructure investments over and above what a fairly ambitious Boris Johnson government committed to. So I think infrastructure is key, but I think it's really tricky to see that that will happen in the current fiscal environment. That's
0: really interesting. We talked quite a bit about funding. Uh, One thing, particularly for public transport, that seems to be quite an issue now is how Changing patterns of working, or changing the, the viability of of funding models. I don't know. Is, is that an issue in, in the West Midlands? Are you having to kind of adjust the, the pipeline of projects?
2: No, no, no. I would say because because our our passenger numbers aren't far off pre pandemic levels. They're just travelling at a totally different time. Mm. So um, I think that is the key. We were. I was having this conversation about rail the other day, which is you know, um, it could be a huge opportunity for our rail network because. Our trains used to be standing room only between 6.30 in the morning and 9.30, and then you could lie down until about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, in which, you know, you could sleep on the train, there's nobody on it. And then it gets really busy again. But actually those patterns of working mean that we can probably get more efficiency from what we run. Um, you know, we're, we're moving a lot of air around on the rail network in the middle of the day. Well, people, you know, now people want to come in, as you say, flexibly. They might decide they'll work from home for a few hours and then come in at – 10 o'clock and, and you know leave it so so there's a big opportunity i think the modernization and and how we get the the working patterns is hard because we've seen um uh recreational transport go through the roof so um you know saturday sunday leisure travel i think that's common actually we're not unique we're not an outlier that's that's what the pattern is showing I
1: like uh, okay. yeah. uh he says that i had a conversation with the rdg uh, rail partners is is now and uh Basically, for most of the operators, leisure rail has gone back, uh, not just to where it was, but to a higher level than before the pandemic. In some operators' cases, 120%. Mm. What is down is the uh, standard commute, the traditional commute, and a little bit on the big intercity journeys. From a rail operator's perspective, they obviously did rather well in the margin uh, on, on those two. So while the numbers are up, the revenue doesn't correspond to that. So that's the latest from the operators. Oh,
2: that's fascinating.
0: I think it'd be great now to come to some... Yeah. Sorry,
1: Coach, Laura, we'll
0: absolutely. It's yeah.
2: interesting though, but we, um, I think what was interesting during the pandemic was regionally understanding who was still traveling. So I think i think london's probably an outlier in that because they have so many office-based jobs mm-hmm. whereas some of the more industrial cities like 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 birmingham and and manchester and newcastle others like that uh, they're not all jobs that can be done from home so the so the the drop off in patronage hasn't been quite so dramatic mm-hmm. um, and we've seen on on things like a bus and metro which serve lots of smaller intermediary journeys um, we didn't see anything like the initial drop that um, that London saw. So the nature and the makeup of your economy uh, makes a big difference in that um, as well. There are just fewer people in the West Midlands who have the ability to work from home than there might be in the you know city centre of London.
0: Oh, a really good point. Thanks, Laura. So, yeah, great, it would be great to get some questions from the audience now. We have one at the back straight away. I'll take one more at the front after that as well.
5: Thank you very much. It's uh, Victoria Hills. I'm the chief executive of the Royal Town Planning Institute, um, but several jobs back, I used to be head of transport uh, for the Mayor of London. And listening to the conversation about the integration and devolution, um, it's a bit like you know, and uh, no offence meant, but sort of stepping back in time. And I really, genuinely feel <laughs> for the regions that sort of the sorts of conversations that you are having is you know, lucky TFL, lucky London. They did that 20 years ago. So there is. if ever there was a case to catch up now, levelling up, yes, catching up, actually, because it's quite frankly outrageous that we're even having these conversations when London got all of that lot 20 years ago. Um, but my question is, uh, reflecting on... Um, and I can say that by the way, because I don't work for politicians anymore, which is a wonderful thing. I, I work for members, so I can, as long as we keep the members happy, we're okay. And of course, Laura is one of our shining members, chartered, absolutely. Of war. Um, so, but the, one of the things we found worked in London with the devolution, you know, and the transport the powers and the revenue raising was the integration with the London plan, um, the place. That's that was where the magic really happened, because you had the London plan and you had um, the, the transport plan and the two worked hand in hand. So I just wonder if anyone on the panel's got any reflections on how that may fit in as part of the Devo story, which I hope continues for the rest of the UK to get what we had in London some time ago. Thank you.
0: Excellent. And then a question down here. Uh,
6: thank you. Um, Matt Og from the SMMT, uh, represent the auto sector. Um, firstly, commend the, the effort on buses. Um, many of the best buses are built in the UK so you actually create a virtual circle of creating jobs because they tend to be in the regions as well. Um, but I just wondered, you haven't really touched on private transport, but clearly we're about to go through a generational shift to electrification and things like that. And that requires infrastructure as well, um, and that's the kind of thing that supports SMEs, logistics, deliveries, uh, and point-to-point travel that can't be solved by public transport. There's there's a complementary element here, and I just wondered what your views are there, so that we don't end up with, again, multiple speed two-tier towns and cities of haves and have-nots, because uh, the rollout of infrastructure tends to follow business case. And actually, there can be market failure in rural regions or more uh, disparate regions. And I just wondered if you might reflect on that, given uh, there's a whole element of transport mode there that we haven't really touched on on this panel yet so far.
0: Yeah. Thanks very much. Any more questions for now? Give
5: you... Yeah. Um, mine was a bit different, but just thinking a bit larger and um, what the panel's views are on whether HS2 will go ahead. <laughs> Thank you
0: <laughs> great so we have a question about integration of the london plan and what that might uh, and with the transport plan and what that might mean for devolution in other areas uh, the role of private transport um and the, the need to roll out infrastructure there and i think interesting question there about appraisal as well and perhaps um panelists might want to reflect more broadly on the way that government appraises transport projects whether there's a leveling up issue there and then an hs2 question um, i'll come down the Actually, I'll start. I'll start at this end with Andrew, just in case Andrew has to has to
1: leave. But. Well, great questions. Uh, I've just come from a meeting earlier today, uh, where one of the panelists was Charlotte Veer, who is a transport minister, and she said that three quarters of local councils don't have a local plan, a transport plan, that is obviously inadequate, and there is a wide variation in the capacity at lo- of local level to deliver and that is a challenge uh, there have been various government initiatives to help boost that capacity uh, and we have various uh, mechanisms for sharing information and expertise urban transport group uh, which laura chairs uh, so i think it is a challenge um, i, I have to say i'm a bit more positive uh, than that i think we are seeing progress When I first started coming to Birmingham 35 years ago, it wasn't as nice as it is now. Uh, And that applies to most of our cities in the UK. So I see significant progress being made, but I also see opportunity for uh, councils to improve and be a bit more entrepreneurial in the way they approach their own placemaking and plan development. Uh, we haven't talked buses and private transport, and, and indeed there is a uh, an element of uh, risk. Things that could become more two tier. I I think that's already happening to an extent. If you travel around the country, we have different levels of provision. So I think part of this is actually catching up. Uh, the idea that we can catch up on things quickly is optimistic. This is a the result of decades of underinvestment in our infrastructure from governments of all colours if you think we haven't built a railway line in the, uh, in england uh, north of london since the reign of queen victoria until hs2 which will be going ahead uh, or we haven't built a runway in the southeast since uh, the passenger jet was invented we haven't had a road program since the 1970s <coughs> you know, this is ridiculous so we need to have a transformed approach to infrastructure working in parallel with the other issues, as Adam identified earlier, uh, to make a material difference. But it is about prolonged, sustained effort, uh, and we will get there. And But my point is, let's not be doomy and gloomy. Our cities and our transport networks are transforming. We have just had the biggest transition on rolling stock on rail uh, since our country went from Steam to diesel, you know, that that happened brilliantly, and it's been a, a success story. So positive work to do, uh, but the capacity to deliver it locally is is not uh, consistent. As regards the HS2 question, um, of course we've got work taking place about 300 locations up and down the line. HS2 is going ahead, and uh, I. I think HS2 is a key levelling up project. uh, For years, the biggest challenge for transport ministers was to put capacity into our networks, whichever mode of transport you were in. HS2 is about putting capacity into our rail network, and uh, it is a I am a little biased. I was the minister that got the uh, phase one bill through the house. Uh, So I'm obviously marking my own homework here. But uh, I I would suggest that HS2 is a critical thing to put capacity into our rail infrastructure. And remember that we have, before the pandemic, had uh, 1.8 billion passenger journeys a year, the highest in UK history, 130,000 rail services per week, the highest in UK history. Uh we are at a uh, record level of safety as well, so the rail industry's been a success, but it's chockers that's why we need to uh actually bite the bullet, get on with it, and start building things
3: Adam, um, i'm gonna 'm gonna be sure because what this what this conference needs is more conflict um so uh on the three questions, so on strategic planning, so there are, there are two issues where I disagree with Andy Street, my old boss. I agree with him on basically everything. One is on the introduction of a precept in the West Midlands, um, that he should introduce a precept and he should use that funding to fund some of the really exciting projects that Laura and her colleagues want to put through. Imagine if he could badge it as, you know, the uh, Andy Street bus route and he could t- take that brave decision in terms of bus lanes and, and do that. The other thing is on uh, strategic planning. So uh, Andy was on a panel with us earlier on, got asked about this and said, you know, it's not the right thing to do. Uh, Local politicians don't support it, and I don't support it either. And his argument was, we can meet our housing targets anyway, and so we don't need one of these things. I actually think the main reason you want a spatial development strategy is for not just the delivery of widgets, how many houses or employment sites can I get, but the other benefits it provides. One of those is integration with a transport system. The other is guiding private investment, digital infrastructure. There are a range of things that a spatial development strategy allows you to do. I'm unsurprised that the town planners... uh, (laughs) There you go. Thank you very much. Um, so I don't have to run for office right now. So that's that's why I'm able to say that. So I, I do think it's something that should be looked at. And um, on uh, so question about cars, the number one predictor of whether someone votes conservative is car ownership. So when we look at range of different criteria, yeah, yeah, if you. So if you look at the data to kind of so it used to be home ownership was another factor. It used to be age is a very determinative one. Uh, Class, education, status, all the rest of it. Number one, car ownership. And. that means that the government are going to are already being and will have to be very very cautious about any uh, measures they 're putting in to reduce the reliance on car for private journeys now of course, sometimes people need to rely on car uh, rely on cars, but when we do focus groups, transport fairly rarely comes up actually people don 't say the number one thing you need to do to level up my town is introduce a tram. The exception to that is around parking, and many people say the number one thing you could do to level up Clacton is we want a massive multi story car park, and that has political resonance, which means politicians that stand up and say one thing i'm going to do is have more parking downtown or free parking downtown they will win votes and that is clearly a consideration shouldn't be the only consideration but it is a consideration when it comes to policy um hs2 i i, I really hope you're right andrew um i am i am less confident um so phase 1 i think is secure uh, phase 1 nailed on. I would be unsurprised if the government said, you know, we're in a tight fiscal environment. Phase 2b is unaffordable, but we are going to deliver northern powerhouse rail. Keep in mind that Liz Truss said that during the leadership campaign. Now what we are going to deliver northern powerhouse rail actually means uh, could be quite a wide range of things. And that could be from actually doing it and getting uh, diggers in the ground to a range of assessments. I mean, there's not really an articulated case of what northern powerhouse rail is. Um, and so you can probably spend a significant amount of time building that and saying, we're we're cracking on with Northern Powerhouse Rail. So I, I am more nervous um, that HS2 is locked in, and I'm very much hoping and uh, that Andrew and colleagues will keep the pressure up on the government, because I agree, it's a vital project. It builds capacity, and it sends the wrong signal to move away from it now.
0: Right. Oh, I'm I'm may or may not so want to respond. I'm so much more fun. Now that really it. Um, you
2: obviously
3: disagree with everything I just said. <laughs>
2: oh, I wish I could say half the things you said. Um, so it will, be, it will be no surprise. I, too, am a, a fierce believer that, y- you know, spatial planning is um, its just part of a trifecta, isn't it, of plans that people need. You, you know, you need to understand your skills. You need to understand your place, and you need to understand how the transport's going to feed it. And it is one um it should be one vision, right? So, so there's no point in putting uh, a rail line between two places where nobody starts or wants to finish their journey. That's just a total waste. So being able to understand, you know, I went to school for urban planning. It's about how you make a place work. Transport is one element of it, but it's really important that it sits, sits alongside. So absolutely, we totally uh, agree with that. Um, I am going to duck the question on HS2 100 percent, but I will say to you that I was on a panel with uh, Nadeem Zahawi who said, let me be very clear, HS2 is going ahead. So I will just repeat what somebody else said in a, in a very safe way. The question about rural, we, um, we had this conversation slightly earlier, didn't we? And it was really interesting. And I will put to you what I put uh, there, which is um, I don't think that the Bus companies do enough to innovate. Um, we, in this region, our bus network uh, is pretty much drawn. Slightly, it's just getting smaller, but it's pretty much just drawn the same way it was, you know, two decades ago. Um, we've definitely improved our fleet, but in other parts of the country, there'll be the same buses that were running those many years ago. That, for you know, we have and we have rural pockets in urban areas as well. But we, you know, w- w- what is happening is, is a race to the bottom for rural provision um, and things being salami <laughs> sliced down, um, you know, uh, because they're not profitable. So I would put a challenge back to the private sector that uh, they receive public subsidy. So it is, uh, it is an interesting conundrum, but they provide a public good. So, how are we going to really challenge um, some of those private industries to deliver something really different for our rural communities because what we have now isn't working? Um, So, I put that challenge back to the private sector as well. Luckily, we
4: just built them. them. Excellent. Well, I mean, on planning, I agree with what's been said in terms of the approach to planning. Interestingly, did some work with the Irish government in the early 2000s and they had the national development plan for the whole country which set out their strategic priorities and where transport fit within that we have the infrastructure commission but you know, they had a very strong view on how they, how their country as a whole was going to develop which is interesting in terms of rural transport I think the big opportunity is in demand responsive transport and how the technology that we already have can be adapted, the other thing I would note is that again it comes back to when you look at the system as a whole so if you think about the component parts of any um, area, we have health. They have assets that you know transport people back and forward to hospitals and GPs. And there's capacity there you know, that could be used for other, you know, if you could actually get the technology to work, you could use that spare capacity. There are assets, as well as the rail industry where we build for the peak, there are assets that are actually lying underutilised amongst the portfolio of the public sector. So there could be opportunities there, but that's the technology. We've already, if Uber, Uber have already got that demand, it works, you know, on major conurbations, but is there an opportunity for some of the rural um, um, areas to, to adopt that?
2: I just wanted to make one more comment. Actually, I forgot to write down. I wrote down um, the word data, uh, and I wrote that down because, um, you know, it's taken really just getting the um, Bus Service Improvement Grant through to even begin to try to get from some of the private operators the data, how on earth are we going to plan a network for people when we don't know where they're starting and finishing their journeys? And we've got all these different bits of an un- sort of unstrategically managed network uh, and different private companies having different bits of, of data and obviously fiercely protecting that data for, for commercial reasons. Um, but that really leads us in a down a way that means we don't plan Properly um, and all that data, and I'm, I'm fascinated by that loyalty. i mean, I'm gonna, can't wait to uh, repackage that as my own. Uh, so thanks for that. But well, like that is, you know, that is actually that would that could really help transform what we do in transport.
0: Excellent. Do we have any further questions? We have a little bit more time. I have plenty more questions to ask. If not,
6: so. <laughs> um, Agnes, I, just, I just sure. wondered, on the role of procurement. I mean, do you see that as a major lever? both for leveling up and decarbonization, because obviously you do have big budgets, but I also know new technologies and new buses, for example, the one that was mentioned, have a high capital expense, and you need to run them for a long time to get that return on investment. But I just wondered if you feel that you've got the powers and the strength to use public procurement for that wide range of good, which will allow you to achieve those goals in the near future.
2: In some cases, yes, I'll take the metro network uh, is a really good example. So um, the... We're in a consortium of a design and build for that, and we used that uh, procurement exercise to be really specific about what kinds of jo- jobs and skills uh, would be reserved or held or encouraged for local people and apprenticeship. So, there, yes, you'd be a f- you'd be shooting yourself in the foot not to use your procurement opportunities to make sure that you get the, the some of the. What you want out of leveling up for local communities, HS two, you know, there, are other, I think I heard yesterday, nine hundred and ninety seven apprentices, you know, a lot of people starting in T levels and then getting a chance to work on um, HS two. So you have, I think, you do have to use public procurement um, in that way. The the one thing I am slightly concerned about when it comes to uh, new energy technologies. Is um, again, we have a quite a unique bus market in the West Midlands. Um, it's a, it's roughly a deregulated monopoly, I would call it. So, we want the private sector to invest, and in, and our bus operators do invest, and in they're investing in new vehicles. But where it is subsidised, I think there's a really uh, very important conversation to be had about how those assets are protected. So. For example, if um, we were successful with an all-electric, Coventry all-electric bus city bid from government, so fantastic, we're going to have electric buses. But what are you going to do about the depot? Who owns the electric uh, fueling, hydrogen fueling, charging, whatever you want to call it? Because if you you allow that then to be owned and operated by the private sector, then you, you lose the benefit of having used public money to procure it. So if Coventry want to change their um, garbage truck fleet, that's not the word you use in this country, I know, but I can't think what you call them, bin lorries or something like that. But if they wanted to decarbonize their fleet, how do you make sure that asset isn't locked away in the private sector? It's a very strange balance while you've got public funding trying to encourage a different type of energy, but then how do you make sure that that's available then back to as the public good? And I think there's quite a lot of work that needs to be done to make sure that we don't lose that benefit.
6: The grid upgrades is one of the big yeah. barriers to private sector yeah. investment yeah. and I think that's one of
2: the market failures where potentially the likes of yourself can step in. But. Yeah. Okay. yeah, but we'll want something in exchange for that.
3: Adam, <laughs> I think you wanted to jump in yeah, on that point. Yeah. Just very quickly, I think public procurement is a lever. Industrial strategy is too. So, you know, in the original industrial strategy, what was that, five years ago now? Kind of ancient history. Uh, I think future mobility was one of the grand challenges, right? And actually... You know, in the West Midlands, right? You can't buy a tram in the UK. There's no UK company that there's no company that makes it. Now that's clearly short-sighted because we're paying more money to international companies to get the goods. And if we invest in future forms of mobility, there are programs in Coventry and in Dudley around very light rail. We invest in this stuff in advance. That might mean the government footing up some of the bill early on, but massively benefits down the line, both by having improved public goods and by paying less money. So industrial strategy, not very fashionable at the moment, but a part of it too.
4: Obviously we have social value and the requirements and procurement now. I think I think the key thing is uh, there's lots of you know, sometimes lots of words about what's in the bids for these projects. The actual implementation and holding people to account is probably a bit more mixed. So there probably there is something around actually how do authorities really make the most of those opportunities and social value and hold the suppliers to account to really um, really retain the benefits. I mean interestingly working overseas. And retained and retained in country benefit, i. e. how do we how do we diversify, how do we create an industry in certain sectors, is a major component of procurement. So it's that thinking about how do we retain that value within our immediate, you know, locations and what can we do through the procurement to make that happen. And social value is one of those, but there are other ways of doing it, you know.
0: Right, we're nearly at the end. I'm just going to ask one final question, but it might be a little bit controversial, so the panelists can feel free to just give separate closing remarks (laughs) if they prefer. So, so the question is going back to the the title of the event, which is What Transport and Where. We've talked a lot about specific regions' work going on there. I think there there is a bigger macro question for the government about what types of transport we really want to be prioritising. And while it's a bit reductive, questions about cities versus towns versus rural areas. So I wonder if you might have any thoughts on that as well as any closing remarks. And I'll start with you, Adam.
3: So I would give weighted funding uh, to transport authorities at a kind of that strategic level. And I would allow them to invest it where they wanted to, because there will be different binding constraints to growth in different places. And kind of George Osborne used to say, look, you know, I don't want Whitehall deciding whether you have a bus station here versus a rail station there. That That is the right approach. So I think the kind of rural to urban would differ in different places. The city region is the right scale. Um, and the amount of funding should be a kind of per capita thing weighted based on uh, lack of investment over the past 15, 20 years. You probably therefore see a lot more investment in coastal areas than in the Midlands and the North.
2: Excellent. Laura? I mean, what do I say to that except everything that he said? <laughs> um, uh, but I would, uh, be, because I am so minded, I would also say um, we have we have areas where people live in what we call transport poverty, and that means they have no access to a vehicle of any kind. And I do think there is a, a priority that needs to be made. We saw in the pandemic really, really clearly um that, that there are many people, many of them were key workers, many of them kept everybody safe and worked through the pandemic, and just how many of those relied on public transport. I think if you take uh, bus routes away, if you shut down people's ability to access and it is mostly bus in this case their ability to access employment and education and community i think we will do a deep injustice to a huge group of people who already were more uh, severely impacted by the pandemic than most so i do think there's an element of being able to be very clear that people who don't have access uh, to private cars should should have access to public transport safe and affordable public transport
0: Great, and Will, I'll leave the final word to you. I
4: think i agree with both of those statements. I think the area of opportunity for you know, regional cities uh, to really grasp the opportunity around technology and actually the, the data question and actually how valuable that is to, to, to them as procuring authorities, providing services, I think there's a lot more to go in terms of how that could be really leveraged to, to really make better use of the assets that we already have in the system. Um, there is... You know, we we've seen it in real post-pandemic. We, we built a fleet for two peaks, which is now changing. So we're going to have to adapt. We have similar transition in other modes. We need to stand back and say, actually, the assets in the system, how do we better leverage them to actually serve the communities, which is getting people to jobs, getting people to opportunities, and actually making sure people are connected. Um, and that comes with improved um, self-control, devolution, but technology and using this is almost as one of the key things, I think.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you very much. This is the point where I'd normally say look out for all of our other IFG events. This is actually the end of our programme. So what I will say instead is look out for all of the recordings that will be online. Um, And if you miss any of the events, uh, you can listen back there. But all that remains for me to say is thank you to Grant Thornton for making this fascinating discussion possible. And if you'd join me in thanking all of my panellists as well.